34. But in the following instructions, I do not command you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I have received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. You may be seated. As we get seated, let me pray for us. Lord God, be magnified in us today. May your work, may your word do a work in us, that we may look more like you, that you may be glorified. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, again, good morning. My name is Sam. I'm on the team here, and it's my joy to open up God's word with you this morning. So, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. I follow Christ. The church in Corinth was a church divided. People were following different individual leaders rather than following Christ. We read all about we read, we read about this all the way back in chapter one. You remember you remember that long time ago when we first started our study in First Corinthians. First Corinthians is a letter that the Apostle Paul was writing to the Corinthian church almost 2,000 years ago. And what we learned then was that the culture of the world on the outside had become the culture of the church on the inside. See, the world on the outside cared more about the status and eloquence of speakers, how well they spoke rather than who or what they were speaking about. And so that's what the church on the inside had started to care about too. And this was causing divisions in the church. Now, I bring this up because in our passage this morning, 10 chapters later, Paul circles back to the topic of divisions again. Look at verse verse 18 of chapter 11. When you come together as a church, Paul writes, I hear that there are divisions among you. 
In our passage today, Paul is addressing divisions in the celebration of the Lord's Supper, which we can call communion or Eucharist, just different names for the same thing. And as Paul goes through this, he has three points in his instruction to the Corinthians, and those are our three points for this morning. The significance, the problem, and the correction. The significance, the problem, and the correction. So let's get into it, into our first point, the significance. Specifically, we're talking about the significance of the Lord's Supper, the significance of communion. If you're taking notes under this point, you should just write, see last week's sermon. Because the the Lord's Supper is so significant, there's so much to unpack that we gave it its own sermon on verses 23 to 26. And not just that, we made sure that John preached it so that you heard it in a British accent. Because as we know, everything sounds more significant with a British accent. (laughs) This is true. (laughs) Now, as John preached, we don't want to attach more significance to the Lord's Supper than we should. But we also don't want to attach less significance than we should because the Lord's Supper is significant. When we take the Lord's Supper, we we are participating in Christ's sacrifice for us on the cross, acknowledging that we are all sinners in need of grace. And so there is something profoundly equalizing about the Lord's Supper, isn't there? Because it's not just participation in Christ's sacrifice for us. It's not less than that. But it's also a statement to ourselves and the world that our value lies not in the categories of this world. Our value is not in, in fame or fortune or family or friends. No, we are all equal under Christ. We are all sinners saved by grace, united in a covenant relationship with the living God. When we say covenant relationship, we mean we all have a special, sacred, exclusive relationship with God because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. So now, Jess and I have two boys and we love, we love our boys. And, and, and one thing we, we, we enjoy about having young kids especially is when you have to take an aeroplane. <laughs> it's been a while, but... <laughs> You know what I mean? When you have to board the airplane, you're, you're, at, the, you're, you're at the gate and, and the announcement comes and says, passengers with young children can board first. And then you rise up with your kids, your ticket to jumping the line, feeling a bit smug, but also a bit self-conscious because everyone is looking at you just thinking, I hope they sit far, far, far away from me. <laughs> Now imagine if we conducted communion like boarding an aeroplane at the airport. Instead of saying, as we do, everyone can come to the front to collect the bread and the wine when you're ready, we say, wait for us to call you. First class members first, then business class, frequent flyers, and then everyone else, you can come and take what's left. Sorry if we run out. It sounds bizarre, but that's actually a bit of what's going on in the Corinthian church. You see, the problem was that the Lord's Supper had become a picture of class division rather than church unity. And that was a problem. That's our second point for this morning. Some context, I think, is really helpful 
You see, in Paul's time, the Lord's Supper, the communion, was celebrated as part of a wider communal meal where Christians brought their own food and they gathered together to eat together. And they didn't have church buildings, so they, they would gather in someone's home. And so it's in this context that we can understand the problem described in verse 21. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. You see, what's happening here is the divisions that Paul is talking about in verse 18 were class divisions between the rich and the poor, the haves and the have-nots. Like the, like the church was just one big aeroplane divided into classes. Where, where, where you sat and the food you ate reflected who you were. The first and business class members were the social elite, the wealthy, the cream of society. They were the minority. They, they had the time and the money to arrive earlier and bring better food. And because they arrived earlier, they got the seats of honour. They, they, they arrived in time to get the seats in the small dining room of the house. Everyone else would arrive later because they came from work. Remember, this was a time when you didn't get time off work on weekends and start holidays. And so because they arrived later, they had to sit outside in the courtyard because there was no more space in the dining room. The elites had taken all, up all that space. And the food they brought, if they could bring any, was of course of a far inferior quality to the gourmet food that the elite were able to bring. But why was this happening? Scholar Craig Blomberg very helpfully unpacks this to help us understand why. The house churches in part resembled other religious associations and fraternal organizations in Corinth, where knowing one's place in the hierarchy of fellowship meals was important. No doubt were affluent, which means rich, wealthy Christians in the church at Corinth who took it for granted that such differentiations, which means divisions, were part of the nature of things. We see what's happening here, don't we? The church on the inside had become just like the church, like the world on the outside, divided based on cultural categories of class, status, and wealth. And at this point, we need to ask ourselves, is this happening in our church? This passage talks about the Lord's Supper, but this application demands that we think more broadly in terms of how we gather as God's people. Do we, either individually or collectively, do things in a way that leaves people out or causes divisions? We can take the slide away, that's okay. Not, not just based on income, but do we divide perhaps based on cultural or perhaps even differences in personality? For example, in developing leaders, do we wait for people to nominate themselves or do we approach people? Because some cultures, some personalities, even if they are very qualified and will do a fantastic job, would find it very difficult to put themselves up for leadership. Another example, whenever we have a church meal or activity, are some people left out because of the cost? 
At, at Christ City, I can say that as much as we can, we want to ensure that everyone feels equally valued and included, but we know that we have blind spots. And so as each of you see a blind spot, would you tell us? And for those of us who would like to know our own personal blind spots, the people and problems that we do not see, would we take time to get to know those people that we don't usually see? Have a coffee or a meal with someone from church for the first time? Ask Johan, our director for 1018, for his perspective. He has lots of perspectives. Talk to Heath, our urban chaplain who works day in, day out at the downtown east side. Even volunteer with him. You can get their contacts on the website or I can, I'm happy to, to link you up with them. So back to our passage. The problem was that the church was divided in the way it celebrated the Lord's Supper. And Paul rebukes them. He's, he goes at them. Verse 17, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, he writes, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, let's just pause a bit here, and I want to unpack verse 19 because it's a little confusing. See, Paul agrees that divisions can help make clear who is truly a Christian and who is Christian only in name. This does not mean that divisions are a good thing. But rather, what he's saying is that God can use something bad for good. See, Paul's point is that it's possible to come to church and sit here every Sunday and still not be a Christian. See, a Christian is someone who is not defined by whether you come on a Sunday, but whether you put your faith in Christ. And our faith or our lack of faith is revealed by our actions. So Paul rebukes them, he scolds them in verse 17, and then he rebukes them again in verse 22. Okay, look at it with me. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing. That's pretty strong language. And then he explains the significance of the Lord's Supper in verse 23 to 26. And just in case they've forgotten that they are doing something wrong, he comes back and rebukes them again in verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. This is serious. Whoever takes the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, meaning that taking it in a way that breaks the unity of the church, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord, which means you are liable for Jesus' death. Let me put it another way. If we abuse the Lord's Supper and vandalize its significance, proclaiming our own status instead of Christ's death, elevating ourselves at the expense of others, dividing instead of uniting, the Bible says we are as guilty as those who put Jesus to death on the cross in the first place. You see, our faith is revealed by our actions. 
And our actions in, in how we take the Lord's Supper reveal whether we have put our faith in Christ in the first place. So that was the problem. How should we respond? Paul gives a correction. That's our third point. In fact, he gives two corrections. The first is this. He calls for self-examination. Self-examination. Look at verse 28. He writes, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. We need to take the phrases, examine himself or herself, and discerning the body together because they really help to clarify each other. See, when taking the Lord's Supper, we are to examine ourselves in a way that we understand the significance of the Lord's Supper and we have concern for our church community as a whole. Let me suggest four ways we can apply this correction of self-examination. The first is this, we need community. The, the Lord's Supper is not about me and God, it's about us and God. You read this passage and you realize you can't take the Lord's Supper alone. You can't have concern for your church community if your community is a community of one. That's why during COVID, even when we were all in isolation, at Christ City, we encouraged everyone to still take the Lord's Supper in community even if that meant taking it together over Zoom. Now, when we talk about the importance of gathering together and taking the Lord's Supper as a community, I, I, I want to be sensitive here because I know there are some of us, when we think about gathering together on a Sunday, we have health concerns or concerns about COVID. I know there are some of us who have been hurt or disappointed or burnt out by church, or perhaps even all of the above. And I say this because I want to acknowledge that even for just some of us seated right here, we have very real reasons why we might want to withdraw from church, why we might not want to be part of community. And some of us might need some time. That's completely fine. But as you do that, as you take time to discern the right church, could I say, please make sure your search doesn't go on indefinitely. Weeks can very easily turn into months and then years and then suddenly a decade is gone and you don't know who you're a part of anymore. COVID was one example of how an indefinite waiting for something to happen can just go on in perpetuity. And may I suggest to you, as has been the experience of many of us here at Christ City, the best place to heal is in a church and not out of it. <laughs> That's another sermon for another day, but God created us for community and to work through our stuff in community. And as much as it would serve you, I would love to sit down and chat with you through this. Second application, what we can see here that it's not enough to be in community. We need to participate in community. You see, we can't have concern for our community. We don't know our community. And we can't know our community until we participate in community, which means investing in knowing and being known. 
And the best way is, is actually to, is to start by joining something. Join a CG, join a service team, join a Bible study, head over to the Connect table and we would love to put you in touch with what's happening in the life of the church. Third application. Examining ourselves means honestly asking ourselves when we're going to take the Lord's Supper if we have unresolved conflict with someone in the church. Or perhaps we've let our own bias impact the way that we relate with our community. Fourth application. While this passage focuses our concern on on our relationship with our community, it also reminds us that the Lord's Supper is for Christians and Christians only. Only those who have put our faith in Christ and so understand the significance of the Lord's Supper. For those of us who are parents, this means we have a responsibility for our children. If they ask to take the Lord's Supper, as much as we can, we should, we must make sure as much as we can that they, they are Christian, that they have put their faith in Christ and that they understand the significance of the Lord's Supper. Now, with, with all these, this talk about the significance of the Lord's Supper and the consequences of taking it wrongly, it's really easy to fall into this cycle of self-doubt. Thinking, am I, am I worthy to take it? Andrew Wilson speaks into this. He writes, The call to self-examination is not a call for moral perfection. The Lord's Supper is not a congratulatory banquet for the sinless. It is a sustaining meal for repentant sinners who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, but know they have fallen short. So so this call for self-examination is not aimed at excluding those who have sinned or none of us would dare approach the table. It is aimed at excluding those who do not care whether or not they have sinned. See, the point here, and we can see it, can't we? The the point is that the Lord's Supper is significant. There are consequences to not taking it correctly. But the significance of the Lord's Supper, when understood rightly, should never drive us away from God. It should drive us to God. You see, we are, we are completely dependent on God's kindness and mercy to be invited to His table. But praise God, His mercy is more than enough. God in His kindness sent Christ so that we don't have to fear eternal condemnation and so that all of us could be invited to His table. And so when we do sin, God, in His kindness, does not condemn, but He disciplines us for our good to protect ourselves and others so that we might live into the joy and satisfaction of becoming more like Him and living for His glory. That's what verses 30 30 to 32 are about. Paul writes, in response to those who are taking the Lord's Supper wrongly, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. We need to be clear here. There there were consequences, there are consequences to the abuse of the Lord's Supper with illness and even death. But verse 32 is so important for us to make sure we understand what's going on. 
But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. You see, Paul is very intentional in using three different words here. Judge, discipline, and condemn. And we need to understand them in their context, the way Paul means them, rather than try to impose our understanding of these words. See, God uses temporary judgment to discipline us, giving us consequences for our actions so that we might not suffer eternal condemnation. I'm going to say that again. God uses temporary judgment to discipline us, meaning giving us consequences for our actions so that we might not suffer eternal condemnation. Remember, Paul is writing to the church, to those who are Christians. God is not a cruel dictator obsessed with making everyone obey him. No, God is a loving parent who disciplines his children out of love for them, out of love for us. And we need to clarify something here. There are times when sickness or illness may be a direct result of a specific sin. But that's not always the case. It's not even usually the case. And the Bible is very serious in warning us against jumping to conclusions that one person's sickness or suffering is directly a punishment for sin. See, the Bible has many, many examples where people's suffering have nothing to do with something that they've done. So the first correction is self-examination. The second is to wait for each other, to wait for each other. Look at verse 33. So my dear brothers and sisters, when you gather for the Lord's Supper, wait for each other. If you are really hungry, eat at home so you won't bring judgment upon yourselves when you meet together. See, what Paul is doing here is he's calling the Corinthians to go against cultural norms and practices. Instead of the rich sitting in special places and eating first and eating nicer food, they should wait for each other to eat the Lord's Supper together so that everyone feels known and valued and included as equals in God's community. As we think about how to apply this, it will look different, but the principle is the same. How can we take steps to understand the perspectives of others? What can we do to live in light of that knowledge, in such a way that everyone feels known and valued and included as equals in our community. This applies not just in the way that we eat the Lord's Supper, but in how we gather together and treat each other more generally in community. This will require effort. Effort to get to know those who are different. And as we get to know each other, Application will sometimes, will often mean taking practical steps away from what we are used to or even what we prefer for the sake of the other. So let me give a personal example. When I first joined the team at Christ City, I barely spoke during meetings. You can ask, Tessa is smiling. You can ask any of the team members here and they can tell you the same thing. They didn't even know, could I speak? What do I sound like? No one knew. And the reason was, firstly, because, and I've accepted this about myself, I am naturally shy in new settings. But the other reason was that I, I, I was in a different culture and I struggled to understand the conversational cues 
When do, I, when do you speak? When do you not speak? You see, where I come from, <laughs> I'm used to waiting for there to be a gap in the conversation for me to speak. <laughs> and furthermore, I'm used to an environment where the new person doesn't speak unless someone asks him or her for their opinion. But I'm in a different culture, in a room that is full of preachers and teachers who talk for a living. <laughs> and we would have whole meetings that went by with not a single gap of silence. And before you know it, I've not said a single word. <laughs> and that's it. Now, I bring this up because the people in the team noticed. And, and some of them would stop the flow of the, of the conversation in a meeting to ask me what I thought. And I'm like, oh no. <laughs> At first, it was daunting. But I also know that some of them, of course, they went to find a book. <laughs> It was a book about cultural differences in communication. And, and I could see it, even though they didn't tell me, I could see them intentionally holding back during conversations, during discussions, because I know they were trying to give me space to talk. And can I say, I think that I've acclimatized a little bit. <laughs> But can I say that has that left a deep impression in me of a team that didn't lord it over me that I was different, but that went out of their way to understand why I was struggling and made space for me. It was their way of waiting for me. And I have so many more examples of this both as a member of the team, but also as a member of this wonderful church. And I bring this up because I think, I firmly believe this is representative of the culture in our church. I know for a fact that many of you have similar stories of your own of how people have waited for you. Taken steps to help you feel part of this community. You see, a sermon like this often has two types of responses. We've done enough, and what more can I do? And I, I feel so privileged to be part of a church where the vast majority of you are constantly saying, what more can I do? I think of your overwhelming generosity whenever we raise support for something. I think about how Many of you go out of your way to welcome newcomers or get to know people you don't. I think about how as our church has been getting more and more diverse, you guys are, are not complaining, but you're saying it's about time. Many of you have done so much and get ready because there's more to do. As our church begins to look more and more like our neighborhood by God's grace, and then as 1018 gets up and running, there's going to be more for each of us to do to make sure that every person feels known 
valued, and included as equals in God's covenant family. I was thinking about to say this, and I think I will. (laughs) When my family and I, we were thinking about moving to North America, friends who were pastoring in places in North America told us, warned us, prepared us, that you will find it very difficult to be part of a non-ethnic church, let alone to work in one. And I don't know about other places, but I thank God that Christ City is not such a place. I thank God for each of you that there's an awareness that people are different and that there's something we might need to do to make our church more like the place God wants it to be. So as you end, I just want to highlight two things. The first is this. We must not make diversity our only definition of success. Because when we, if we focus on diversity alone, we can very easily end up in a place where we are artificially imposing the appearance of diversity from the outside in. But that's not how it's supposed to be. True success is in gospel faithfulness and gospel fruitfulness. And diversity is just fruit. It's fruit of faithful gospel preaching and gospel culture. The second thing I want to highlight is this, and and we're ending here. Our aim is not to create a community where everyone feels comfortable. You know, when, when looking for a church, people often, including myself, sometimes use the language of, I'm looking for a place that feels like home. And I just want to say that's fine. But it actually depends what you mean by home. If by home we mean a place where we feel comfortable and where everyone is like us, we've got it wrong. Because our aim is not comfort, it's God's glory. And can I say, God is most glorified when our church looks less and less like our earthly home and more and more like our heavenly home. Because that's where we belong. That's where we're headed by God's grace, where there will be people from every tribe and every nation, every culture and income and status and class and and interest and everything else you can think of. That's where we're headed. That's where we belong, where we will praise God together with one voice. And until we get there, Christ City, every time we take the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming to ourselves and to the rest of the world that we're not home yet. But as God's covenant people, we will be one day because of Jesus' body that was broken for us and His blood that will be shed for us. That was shed for us. Looking forward to the day when we will be eating with our Savior forever.